0: Good morning, Village Church. Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. And uh, we're in a, a series called Red Line. And uh, I'll explain that in a moment. But my, my kids and I have been watching all of these clue-like detective movies. And we are trying to watch every single one we can get our hands on. I, I'm sort of obsessed with saying, Okay, The the name of the detective in the Orient Express, I think I totally botched it. There is a French woman who attends our church, and I want to apologize now for completely butchering his name, or Benoit Blanc, you know? And uh, you guys, you probably have your favorite um, detective, but what I love is I love watching these geniuses walk into utter chaos. And to watch them make sense of the chaos, it's so satisfying. And it's it's a reminder that, like, in life... Very few things actually make sense in the moment. And I'm reminded that there is a God who understands and knows all and can make sense of anything personally I hate not knowing. Anybody else in the room? I, if I'm being really blunt, at times my heart, I demand answers. And sometimes when I don't get the answers, it's easy for me to say, I need some space. You owe me a why. So do you guys remember the show, Unsolved Mysteries? I hate that show. <laughs> it always ended the same way. They never solve the mystery, but there is a murderer in a neighborhood like yours just waiting to come out. Like I always left with like, oh great, the worst human beings are, in the, are, are like all around us in our neighbors and we'll never ever figure it out. Well, there, there's a, a phrase that if you've heard me preach long enough or if I have counseled you, you have probably heard this phrase come out of my mouth. And this is the, the thing that I say when you're looking at a circumstance and it just doesn't make any sense. Here it is. There's always a piece of information that if you had it, would actually make sense of everything. Have you ever just looked at a circumstance and you're like, oh, this is so illogical. And then sometime in the future, this new piece of information came out and all of a sudden, everything made perfect sense. And, and, And here's the deal. In every one of our confusing circumstances, God Has that piece of information and he doesn't give it to us. And it drives me nuts. Consider Job. This is a great example. If you read the book of Job, you know what's happening to him. This guy loses everything. I mean, his life is an absolute mess. And there's like one missing piece of the puzzle in his brain, which is, Why is this happening to me? And the entire book is him kind of wrestling with his friends and with God about why is this happening? And all God had to do was give him the missing piece of information. Um, uh, Actually, Job, the reason we did this is so that I could make a mockery of Satan, show all of the followers of God for millennia of history after this moment my providence and sovereignty, and so that you could be a hero and a model for people who suffer from now until my coming back again to judge the living and the dead. Like, if only Job would have known that? Don't you feel like it maybe would have helped him, like, I don't know, get through it? And even at the end of the book, him and, him and God have a conversation, and it drives me nuts. He's, he wants to know why, and God's like, who are you? If I want you to know, I'll tell you. You've asked. I haven't responded. And you even get to the end of the book, and here's what it seems. It seems like this guy dies, never understanding all of the catastrophes that happened in his life. There's always a piece of information that if you had it, it would make sense of everything. And of all the unanswered questions in the universe, what I have found are the most difficult for Christians, they fall into two categories. And we call these the why and the will questions. God, why did you let this happen to me? God, what is your will for me? And I want to be really clear. God knows exactly why he allowed, ordained, or permitted it. God has the answer. Now, whether he chooses to give that answer, that's his prerogative. My experience with the Lord is that he often waits for a while and inevitably begins to make sense of things, but it takes a long time It usually makes sense after prayer, counsel, and when the series of events are over. How irritating is that? God, what is your will for me? I've also learned about the Lord that he rarely ever gives me anything more than one step ahead. Like, God, I want to know the next five years. And he's like, here's just the next thing I want you to do. Just do that thing. Yeah, but what happens after that? I'll I'll tell you when when you get there. And, And the why and the will questions drive Christians crazy. And when God doesn't give you the why or the will, we have one of two options in responding. And one, which is the path of least resistance, is distrust. And distrust starts very simply. It starts with blame. You'll hear this come out of your mouth when you're praying. Maybe you're talking to other people about it. God... If only you would have not or stopped or done or done things differently, you begin to look at God and blame him like it's his fault. Then it moves when it gets a little bit darker, the distrust grows. It moves into accusations. You did this to me. You didn't just let this happen. You did this to me. And you know your distrust, when you don't know the why or the will is at its worst, when you start working in conspiratorial assumptions, I know you're up to no good. There are people who walk away from the Lord because they don't believe he is for them, because they actually do not trust his heart, and they begin to put this framework of God together that he is cold, he doesn't care, he's abandoned you, and they begin to de- develop these really conspiratorial frameworks that aren't accurate at all. I think there's a better option, by the way. I think the better option is trust. And here's, here's kind of how you know that you're on the pathway of trust. Trust. When you don't have the why you don't have the will, you give God the benefit of the doubt. This is hard. To give someone the benefit of the doubt requires trust. Uh, I'll give you a definition that I think really helps us in this context. It's to have a disposition of trust and tenderness to God as we wait for his why and his will. Trust is, is is the decision. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to continue to choose to lean into you. And tenderness, I think, describes sort of the attitude. I'm not going to harden my heart to you, but I'm going to stay tender to you, even though I don't know why this thing happened or what you are up to or how this is all going to pan out. I'm going to continue to follow Jesus, and I'm going to continue to have a tender heart to you. I cannot tell you how many of my sermons are mostly about encouraging us to have a tender heart to God when we don't understand what he is up to. 1 Corinthians 13:7 says this love believes or bears all things and then it says this it believes all things. This is literally trusts that if you're going to be in a loving relationship with God, there's going to be a disposition of your heart that you are tender and trusting to him when the things around you are not Making sense. Now, um, open uh, your Bibles with me to uh, John chapter 13. And as we go there, I want to set this chapter up with you. The series, again, is called Red Line. And a red line, um, for definition, it's your personal boundary beyond which you have decided not to pass. It's the fastest, furthest, or highest point of degree considered safe. And we've talked about what, what is beyond the red line because we're gonna get up to this point where we're like, yeah, I'm not going here any further. And now some of you are wondering if I'm gonna have more um, pictures about heights that I'm petrified of. No, nope. we're done with the heights discussion. I almost threw up last time just looking at some of those. But what lies on the, on the other side of a red line? Unacceptable danger and risk and discomfort or loss or death. So this morning, we're, gonna, we're actually gonna focus on the disciples, We're going to focus on their red line, what held them back from actually following Jesus. And so here's what happens in John 13. In one short day, these disciples are going to be asked to cross their red line. Now, what you have to understand about John 13 is John really 12, all the way to the end of the book, all take place in the last week of Jesus's life. In fact, John 13 to the end of the book all take place in the last two days of Jesus' life. And so here's what's going to happen within the next 24 or less hours, these disciples are going to be asked to publicly affiliate with Jesus as he is tried, slandered, and publicly murdered. And they're going to have to figure out in the next 24 hours, they have no idea this is coming. They should, but they don't. And they're going to have to really figure out, will I follow Jesus and stand with him even if standing with him means they might kill me too? It's a big deal. Now, as you keep your Bibles open to John 13, I want to set some more context. And I want you to read this on the screen from Mark chapter 8, 31. It says this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Was Jesus crystal clear what was gonna happen the week of Passover this year? The answer is Yes. And if you gave the disciples a quiz, what does Jesus think is going to happen this week? Would they have passed the quiz? Yes. Their issue is not cognitive in nature. They refused to accept this plan. They didn't like it. It did not make any sense to them. It seemed irrational. And God, if you don't make sense, it must be your problem. Because last time I checked, you should be consulting with me because my ideas are really good. No, that's not actually the way it works. Look at verse 32. says, he said this plainly. And then Peter took him aside. The audacity of this child... To take Jesus aside and rebuke his rabbi. This is a really big deal. He is not having this, and I want you to get it. Peter understands cognitively exactly what Jesus is saying is gonna happen. And Peter does not trust him in his heart, either that he knows what will happen or that Jesus knows what is best. Jesus, your plan is dumb. And you need to listen to me because we have a better plan. It's time you finally bent the ear to me for once. And, and and there's a there's a question implied when Jesus talks about they're gonna betray me, they're gonna try me, they're gonna kill me, I'm gonna rise again. And here's the question that I, I'm guessing they're talking amongst themselves. Okay, if this happens, will we go with him? Will we identify with him? And you guys already know this by now. Only one of the 12 stood with Jesus at the crucifixion. And that was John who wrote this book. And what John 13 is going to begin to address to us is, is one of the many reasons why. Because they didn't understand. For some reason, these guys required understanding and their questions answered in order to follow Jesus. And then this is gonna force us to ask a question. I'll kind of let it ponder in your brain at the beginning here. Do you require Jesus to make sense for you to follow him? Do you require your questions to be answered before you will follow him? And I'm gonna be honest, there's a lot of people who won't follow Jesus because of fear, but there's a whole lot of people who won't follow Jesus. Because they require him to make sense. Because they have a list of questions. I will not follow you until you answer these. Then I will follow you. But what if he never does? All right, John 13. This will be a little bit different. We're going to fly over the chapter. You're going to notice in John 13, there's a lot happening. But we're going to focus on the disciples And their confusion, they left John 12 very confused, and they're going to leave John 13 even more confused. We'll we'll start in John 13, verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's confused. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now. This word understand, it comes up all the time. He said, you don't get this. I understand that. You're dense as a doornail. You're pretty prideful. You're already rebuking me for going for the whole plan. I get it. You don't understand this. But Peter said to him, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. Does, does Peter understand anything right now? No. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Does Peter have a clue what Jesus is talking about? Nothing. And if you're reading the book of John carefully, this is what should bother you. Peter should have no reason for not understanding Jesus. But here's the deal. Peter has a thing in his brain. Jesus, it can't be that. It can't be that. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus, you, it can't be this. And so even though Jesus says it over and over and over and over and over again, Peter refuses to, to accept it. And, and I get this. Like, they have zero category for a resurrection, let alone the Messiah being killed. But I, if I was going to give anybody the benefit of the doubt that they were going to be raised from the dead, wouldn't it be the guy who just raised Lazarus from the dead? Anybody? Look at verse 12 in John 13. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? Do you see this question that keeps coming up? And what is the answer? They have no idea. This, number one, is not normal behavior for a normal rabbi, but last time we checked, is Jesus a normal rabbi? We're going to go with definitely not. And the disciples are regularly put in positions where they have to trust in Jesus even though they have no idea why he's doing what he's doing. And somehow, as the book of John unfolds, they're going to be asked to trust him and to stand with him while he is being publicly murdered and to affiliate with them when they have zero categories for how this could possibly turn out for good. Look at verse 28 in John 13. Um, In verse 27, uh, Judas is literally in this verse possessed by Satan himself in front of Everybody and nobody seems to have like a clue. I, I just in my brain. I think if like you were possessed by the devil himself in my presence, I feel like my discernment radars would go off. Maybe that's a perk of the Holy Spirit. I don't know. Verse twenty-eight. It says this. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to them. What did he say? He said. To, he said to Judas, "Judas, what you are going to do, do it quickly. The most evil spirit in existence." And the most righteous person ever are playing a life and death game of 4D chess in front of all of these disciples, and they are dumb as rocks, and they cannot see at all what's going on. It's just flying right over their heads. Should they have been confused? No, he already told them. They're going to betray me. They're going to kill me. Guys, Passover is tomorrow. I've already told you the plan, and they have no categories. Now, I'll go down to verse 36, and I'm trying to show you this pattern. And this is just John 13. I mean, this carries on in the book of John, their utter confusion. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? What has he already told them? I'm going to die. Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I will cross the red line. If I am asked to publicly affiliate with you, I will die I will literally tell everybody, I follow Jesus of Nazareth. I don't care what the cost is. Jesus answered, verse 38, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here's the deal. Like in Peter's intentions, they're really great. But at the end of the day, until Peter could make sense of things, Peter had no intention of following Peter required his questions to be answered before he would actually cross the red line. And it's irritating to watch. Now I wanna wanna answer a question that um, might be looming. Why will 11 of these 12 men fail to stand and affiliate publicly with Jesus in less than 24 hours? And at the end of the day, it's really hard to trust when you don't understand anything that's going on. Nothing made sense to them. Nothing fit into their biblical categories, their theological categories, their relational categories. They could not make sense of anything. And there's something that happens in the human heart when things don't make sense. It's really easy for us to pull away from the Lord. Let me, let me explain to you what actually didn't make sense. So you, you know this if you've read a little bit of the Bible. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah. And the Old Testament, the prophets, have a lot to say about the Messiah. He's going to come and he's going to rule over all of, not just Israel, but the entire world. He's going to take the enemies of Israel, put them under his feet. He's going to usher in global and eternal security and peace. There's clearly something supernatural about this character because the kingdom that he leads is going to happen forever and ever and ever and ever. And all of those things are true about Jesus, who is the Messiah. But there is another character in the Old Testament, and he was called the suffering servant. And, the, and in the Jewish brain, these are two separate characters. So now you have the suffering servant. And the suffering servant is going to be betrayed, he is going to die, and there's going to be a lot of things that happen to him. And so here's what's been really interesting in Jesus' ministry Jesus has been trying to tell them, I am the suffering servant. And I am the Messiah. And in their brain, here's what they're saying. That's two different people. How can, how can you be one person but two different people? And he's like, dummies. It's the same person. No, he didn't actually say that word. That's just mine. So, getting kids listening. You silly, you silly boys. <laughs> Can't you understand? <laughs> it's not two people. It's the same person. No, that's ridiculous. Jesus, if he's dead, then how can he reign forever? Do you remember Lazarus? What happened to him? That doesn't make any sense. If you're dead, how can you raise yourself from the dead? Holy moly. This theological conundrum... They couldn't overcome it, even though Jesus literally gave them the answer. I'm going to be betrayed like the suffering servant. I am going to die, and I am going to rise again. Then I will take on the other messianic duties, and the kingdom of heaven will come to the earth. And then, you fill in the blank. They could not Put it together for the life of them. It made no sense. And rather than trusting Jesus was smarter than them, they bailed. They bailed. To the point that when they found him raised from the dead, what were they? Shocked. Really? For real? And at the end, when they see the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus, they they go, Oh, we should have trusted you the whole time. And Jesus, I imagine, would have said, correct, you should have. Do you see see the, the problem here? God has a habit of withholding information. In fact, the New Testament calls this the mysteries that were hidden. Um, not just from the prophets, but from the spiritual domain and rulers, that there were actually things in the global plan of God that he did not reveal until the apostles revealed them. Why? Well, one of the reasons that First Corinthians chapter 2 says is so that they would actually follow through and kill Jesus. Put yourself in Satan's shoes just for a moment, if you would. Do you think that if Satan knew the death of Jesus Christ was going to result in his eternal destruction, do you think he still would have gone through with it? Here's the deal. Had anybody ever before the death of Christ ever experienced the death of God? Nobody had any category of what was going to happen except for God himself. What was going to happen with the death of God was one of the mysteries hidden for ages to come. And I, and I imagine Satan in his hubris and ridiculous is like, well, if you kill God, he's dead, right? If you kill Jesus, he's dead. Now I got to deal with the Father and the Spirit, but still. He had no idea what was going to happen. And part of this was the mystery, and here's the deal. Sometimes God doesn't tell you the why or even the will on purpose, and that, my friends, is the Christian life 98% of the time. And and we're left with huge questions. When I don't know why, and I don't know what, will I abandon Jesus, or will I still stand with him, no matter what the cost? I don't know when I cross the red line what danger lies on the other side of this, but but I do know that my body and my soul and my eternity are safer in the hands of Jesus than they are in my own hands. And this, this brings us to two simple so what's. Sometimes God doesn't tell us his why or his will on purpose. Let me surmise a few reasons why God might not do this. Number one, maybe because we can't carry it. There are some things that are too difficult that are coming down the road that if we knew it now would probably cause much anxiety. And so maybe there's something about the why or the will that honestly we're not prepared for yet. Moms and dads are the things that you don't tell your kids because they're not prepared to carry the emotional, spiritual weight of it for sure. It's actually an act of love and good parenting. Maybe... Because like Peter, we might actually seek to sabotage God's will. Because in our hubris, that's ridiculous. Why would you do that? If you just do it this way, it's going to be much better, God. Consult with me more often. I have a pretty low fee. (laughs) Maybe because he's testing your faith to see what he can entrust you with in the future. I have known this to be a regular practice Of the Lord. Maybe He is growing your faith, your confidence in Him, your trust in Him. Maybe He's building the muscle because in the next two, three, six, 12 months, He's going to be asking you to carry something and He needs to work you out to prepare you for it. Maybe it's all of the above. At the end of the day, I know that one of the most pleasing things to the Lord in Scripture is trust. It's faith. It's belief. All the same word in Greek. It is a disposition of our heart to follow him and to give him the benefit of the doubt. That that is one of the most precious things in the sight of God that pleases him. And so what does God want to develop in us? Trust. Faith. Confidence. Confidence. You don't develop trust by telling you everything. You develop trust by not telling everything and then showing them how it is actually for good. It's very different. If he told us everything, our trust in him wouldn't grow. We would just become entitled brats who said, keep telling me, keep telling me. I require information to move on, and if you don't give it, I won't. And the second so what, if you can't see a theme here, it's a very simple message. And this is what I think if the disciples could, could actually stand before you now, they would say, trust him. Just tr- trust him. I know it doesn't make sense. I know there's a lot of things in front of you. I know that all, how all this is going to pan out can feel very confusing. I need you to trust him and keep your heart tender toward the Lord. By the time you get to the end of chapter 13, every one of these disciples is even more confused. Uh, Look at John 14, verse 1, and Jesus gives them this antidote. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Why are they troubled? They're upset. They do not understand what's happening. They don't understand where he's going. They're afraid that this ridiculous plan of being rejected and killed and being raised from the dead is actually to be put in motion. They don't actually believe he's going to be raised from the dead, so they think it's a bad idea. They are like, "What is going on right now? They're not okay." And he says, "Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust me." That's what belief means. Belief is not just a mental assent to a truth. It is a heart disposition calm your hearts down, lean into me, believe me from your heart. This is going to be fine. I know what I'm doing. Stick with me. Stay near to me. Be proud of me. Don't deny me before men. Because if you deny me before men, my Father will deny you. Stick with me. Aren't you so glad for second chances through the blood of Christ? I won't ask you to raise your hand, so please don't. Any of you ever denied Jesus? Have you ever maybe not been proud of him publicly? Anybody? Good? Again, rhetorical, meaning don't raise your hand. I'm confident the majority of the time, God will not tell you the why or the will. It's interesting when I think about, I did not plan this part, so this will be a little off the cuff. When I think about Matt moving, Pastor Matt, going to Upper Peninsula Bible Camp. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. How many students are having a hard time understanding? God, why would you do that to me? Lord, what's your will in that? And moms and dads, like I like, I mean, gosh, I'm gonna cry again, but just <laughs> like I really wanted Matt to be my kid's youth pastor until they graduated. You know, like I really wanted that. That's my will, by the way. My will stinks. But I have to pull back and and parents have to pull back and friends have to pull back and kids and students need to pull back and say, well, Jesus taught us that we may not like everything, but not your will done, but mine, number one. And number two, I'm not going to harden my heart because I don't like it. Do, Do you see the struggle with Peter? Peter loves Jesus and the idea that Jesus could be killed that's ridiculous to him. And we have the same thing. The, the idea that God would take someone we love and bring them someone else, the idea that God would allow somebody we love, think about friends and family who have passed away or friends and family that have moved away, and, and like God's will is hard at times. And, and I think one of the things the disciples, they could get up, they would just look at all of you and say, I get it. The wise will come eventually, usually not right away. The will of God, we know the next right thing. Trust Him. Keep your heart tender and soft to Him. He deserves your trust. And then, like the disciples, when they saw the resurrected Jesus, they're going to go, Oh, I should have trusted you the whole time because you're a genius. And so I want to I take a moment. We're going to celebrate communion here and, uh, in, in a second. But um, if you are a believer in Jesus and you have failed, to trust God, maybe your heart's disposition has been bitterness, blame, accusations, name-calling. I think this is a great opportunity to repent of that and to apologize to the Lord and say, I am so sorry. And I have a hunch that if you've been in that position, you already know the next right thing to do. The Holy Spirit has probably already told you, you need to go talk to this person or make that decision or make this thing right Apologize to him and resolve to follow him no matter where he asks you to go. And one of the reasons we partake of communion, by the way, is not because we're good. It's because we're sinners. And communion is a reminder to us sinners that the blood of Christ covers all of those who are his. And new starts, new mercies are available to us every single day. Maybe you're here and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ. Maybe you, you require a whole bunch of questions to be answered. And I've got good news and hard news. The good news is you don't need your questions to be answered in order to believe in Jesus Christ. Why do I say that? Here's the hard news. You're never, ever going to get all of your questions answered. Ever. But do you know that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? And do you know that Jesus died for your sins in your place? Do you you believe that God raised him from the dead and he's coming back? Are you willing to trust your body, your soul, and your eternity to your creator's hands and heart? And if you are willing to do that today, you can trust Christ for the very first time and receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, you still won't get all your questions answered, but he will prove himself faithful faithful from this point forward, into all of eternity. You're never gonna get to a point when you look back and you regret trusting your life, your heart, your soul, and your eternity to Jesus. If that's a decision you wanna make today, come talk to somebody up front, tell somebody you came with, and we would love, love to celebrate you for the first time being reconciled to God, not by being a good person, but by believing in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the example of these disciples. I thank you that we get to look at their dense behavior. And it's so frustrating, but God, we're not that different. We actually have less excuses because as as your sons and daughters, after the resurrection, we have the Holy Spirit in us. But God, like them, would would you protect us from a hard heart toward you? Would you teach us to trust you and to give you the benefit of the doubt? Especially when we come up to these red lines, God, I pray you would just give us this ability to have the complete confidence to entrust our reputation to you, our finances to you, our body to you, our friendships to you, the outcomes to you. Lord, would you build in us a spirit of trust so that when we do come toe-to-toe with these red lines, we can put one foot in front of the next and follow you wherever you lead us. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.